Hi, and welcome to Brand New from the iHeart Podcast Network and Brand New Labs. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Pereira, and I'm back in LA. Marissa, where are you? Uh, I am back in Charlotte, but I was in California all week, and I was just south of you. I was really sad that we didn't get to rendezvous, but it was really nice because I was able to combine a little personal time over the weekend with a work trip, and it's really nice when that comes together, isn't it? Well, SoCal misses you. We have to find time to get the families together. Yes. But other than you being in California, I think there's some other new stuff going on. It's been a busy week. Threads? What's new for sure this week was Threads. And I expect by the time people are hearing this, I mean, who knows, 70 million users by day two, which should be well over 100 million now. And Stephen, you were on Bloomberg very recently talking about this. So I think we should kick it off with you sharing your POV that you shared so well there. It's just so funny how the media just kind of rouse around anything that's new coming out of technology. But ultimately, this is a brand new brand, right? And we're always looking at things through the lens of brand. Yeah. It was really interesting to see the interest where people are trying to understand why is this going to be successful? And I feel one of the most important things was Threads really solves the cold start problem, which any new product really has, which is how do you figure out that equilibrium between supply and demand? And Instagram being one of the largest platforms out there, they really solved it in a very smart way, which was, I think it took less than four seconds to actually create your Threads account. It's obviously feeding off of the Instagram audience graph. And immediately you actually populated and you found your friends on Threads. And so by having an audience already baked in where you did not have to wait to find people joining it, it was already kind of a known entity. I feel like that solving the cold start problem was probably the most impactful thing. Granted, maybe that's a competitive advantage or unfair advantage because of Instagram's audience, but it was really compelling to see immediately populated and not just our friends, not just, you know, our family, but also brands. What was your experience with Threads? Well, I think you're on to one of the biggest perks of it was the ease of of entry. And you didn't really have to think, which was a real advantage because before you overthought it and before you had second doubts, you were up with Threads account and suddenly your whole social graph from Instagram is ported in. And I think that translates to brands. It was amazing to see day one, the influx of brands with the same kind of account, you know, it was all very back to basics Mm -hmm. in a way that I think everyone was a bit giddy about. One of my first threads was commenting that it feels like the first week of school (laughs) and it does still. And in a way that makes people feel, I think, delighted and positive. Again, I think one of the big questions will be, how does this momentum stick? Are people going to stay with it? Or are they trying a new toy and they're going to lose a little interest? And will the positivity that seems to be around the platform stick? But from a brand standpoint, brands now have immediate followings commensurate with the size of their Instagram followings. So, oh yeah, you know, if you're a big brand on Instagram, probably already have a big brand on threads. What do you do with that now? The fact that it's a text-driven platform like Twitter, and we'll talk about the kerfuffle between those two respective <laughs> CEOs in the process of this launch. But the fact that it's text-driven, I think, has been refreshing for all those social media managers and brands who just get to be smart and witty and not go for, um, you know, really high res content or really well-produced content. It's really just about the art of connection again. And I think there's something really refreshing about that. 
Absolutely. I mean, I feel some of the folks that were really early on Twitter and really funny and witty were some brands like American Eagle, Wendy's. I think some brands got called out for actually recycling some of their original <laughs> tweets. Really? Yeah. That's yeah. funny. That was interesting. It was like, hey, you know, we, we saw you posted this on Twitter like years ago, <laughs> and now you're just posting it here. You can't do that. Um, but it, it is a different medium. But everything that's old is new again, so maybe. True, true. <laughs> but it, it is interesting to see some of the kind of fun, the playfulness. And I feel that, you know, it's also a place where you see celebrities already trying to recreate that kind of sense of lightness. Mm-hmm. Certainly some celebrities, the guy that I work with, Eugenio Derbez, he's on there already and he already has a massive big following. So I feel like it's going to be a really great place to have fun and to really bring that almost like bygone era of the early days of social, right? That's right. Where it was just fun and light and it didn't have all the toxicity. I'm sure it'll get infiltrated just like every other platform, but for right now, it feels very light. Well, I'll tell you, as someone who was pretty OG with Twitter and with other social platforms, I was. And you were. I also was in a corporate role in which I was effectively evangelizing the rise of social media to brands. It was a big part of my job. It was Mm -hmm. essentially my job when I was at the Estee Lauder companies. Didn't you just give that to the interns? (laughs) There were no interns back then. (laughs) It was chief cook and bottle washer because it was all so new. And I really remember championing this new idea then that it was going to be about content and community. And that was what was going to win. And this sea change that we take for granted now. And then, of course, Facebook and Instagram and the others became ad platforms and they became so sophisticated. So now we hear, of course, Mark Zuckerberg saying, I'm not even thinking about monetization Mm -hmm. until we reach the billion mark, although that billion mark may come a lot sooner than maybe even he thought, let alone the rest of us. But what is nice... I think it's going to happen very quickly, by the way. I think it will. And then we'll see what happens. But to your point, it's nice that it really is back to the idea of content, conversation, community. And that's what always appealed to me about social media. And then we, of course, societally have seen all the dark sides of it. So we shall see. I guess I would bring both a combination of optimism and skepticism to this. But right now, I'd like to lean in with the optimism. Yeah. I think the lack of monetization on it right now is actually a good thing. It's giving it space to breathe. Alvin Bowles, who's the new VP for the Global Business Group at Facebook, or Meta, sorry, it's mm-hmm. old habits that hard. Mm-hmm. Brands are already reaching out to him, trying to understand, hey, you know, can we actually do audience targeting and what's the measurement like? And it's like, hey, 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 not we're yet. not ready for any of that stuff yet. We might have to get Alvin on the pod to ask him some of those questions <laughs> about something that's brand new. But I do feel that one of the key things that will be a major unlock is if they could actually get monetization the right way for creators specifically enabling creators that aren't, you know, kind of the A-list celebrities, but the creators that are truly connecting with micro audiences around all of those kind of interest areas. That is the true power of the creator economy. I know that's one of the big things that we're really excited about. Um, But I, I feel like if there's a way that creators feel that they're getting their fair share and getting paid for their content on this platform, that could be a major unlock for Threads. Well, and I'm curious when I first downloaded it, and I didn't realize, maybe not everyone does, that you can change your settings so the people in your feed are just the people you already follow. But that's not the default setting. So the default setting is you're seeing a feed of people that they've chosen or their algorithm has chosen to populate. So it will be interesting with this big of a following audience already 
who gets preferenced Mm -hmm. in your feed, which creators, which ordinary people, and then ultimately which brands, because it's already preference to those who have big followings on Instagram. Fair or not, but same company. So we shall see. Uh, This is going to continue to be, I know, a conversational topic for us. But, you know, coming up, we're going to move to this week's hot topic, which is summer planning. And as much as we all... Not not, not summer vacation? Well, so here's the thing. I know it feels like summer planning right now is about what's the next thread you're going to post. Or if you're having some vacation photo FOMO, like I am when I'm looking at everyone's social feeds, we're not talking about summer vacation planning. So we're talking about something a little closer to the business coming right up. We're back and our hot topic of the week is summer planning. As we said before, we don't mean vacations. In fact, summer is a time where if you did get a vacation, lucky you. If you're just sitting and taking a momentary social media break, looking at other people's vacation photos. That's nice, too. Wait, brands don't go on vacation? (laughs) Well, brands and businesses don't. And if you're in this business, especially if you're on a fiscal year that matches to a calendar year, you're in this funny time where the sun is shining and you're thinking about the beach, but you're also in team multitasking mode. Why? Because you have to be running the current business. And we all know it's a challenging time for many businesses with the economy still having a lot of question marks around it. At the same time, you're also most likely in next year's strategy planning season, so 2024 strategy. And what goes with that is not only the beginning of planning how you want to show up in the marketplace, what objectives and strategies you'll have, but what are the budgets for next year? And so we thought this was an important hot topic because it's one that doesn't get talked about that much, yet it is seminal to getting the work done and how decisions get made. And so thought we'd start by kicking around. We're both in big businesses right now with the overlay of this current economy and this teetering sense of recession, just questions about where we are. New job growth looked actually pretty good that came out this week. At the same time, there are other macros that don't send all positive signals. Inflation's still a concern. How is that impacting all of us in these big chairs thinking about budgets. So I'll kick it over to you to start the conversation and we'll go from there. Yeah, this is exactly why I love doing this with you, Marissa, because you have actually been in the C-suite. This is the conversation that probably most folks don't really focus on because summer is when you're really getting very close with your CFO to understand how are we going to forecast the business. If you're a public company, you are actually using this time during the summer to really lay down your budgets, trying to understand your forecast. What did Wall Street guidance look like for either Q4 or really moving into fiscal 24? But the reality is this is about the partnership across the C-suite. And usually this is where you have to start to justify what is your budget going to be Some firms do zero-based budgeting where you're actually starting every fiscal from zero, and then you have to kind of justify every single incremental dollar, or you're doing a top-down approach where, okay, you had X amount of money, and then you're going to increase that budget 2%, 5%, whatever it is. This is the time. And I remember from the days when I was at Publicis and I was working with Walmart, you know, right after July 4th, you are full-blown doing holiday planning. Right. And that's when you're really focused on Q4 where, you know, more than 40% of all retail sales actually happened in that quarter. So this is actually one of the busiest times. 
I'd love to get a little bit of perspective of one, how are you working with your CFO, your other C-suite counterparts, and how would you prioritize this time? Like, what's the real talk inside of the C-suite? Well, I want to seize on the word time because I think that is actually one of the hardest things that I've found across industries is just finding the time with your team to think because everyone is run, act, do, address, improve, especially in in retail businesses where you kind of have to have that finger on the pulse and the agility as opposed to longer-term planning with much more luxurious cycles. So for me, the number one challenge right now, Mm -hmm. I'm living it right now, is how do you manage to the day-to-day, but also literally find the time with your team in the calendar to do the work of saying, what have we learned so far? How are we tracking toward our objectives and strategies we had for this year? And then, by the way, what are the implications of that for what we want to set for next year? So the time piece is, in some ways, the most vexing one because we don't give ourselves nearly enough time to think anymore mm-hmm. based on the pace of business. And it's it's tough. I certainly don't have a simple solve for that. But it's also time across a couple of different vectors, right? There's time right, where right. you as the leader of your team needs time to think about this, certainly from the strategy as well as the tactics. Then you need time with your team, but then you also need time with your first team, mm-hmm. right? I think a lot of people don't realize that the C-suite is your first team right? and you need to spend time with your peers. And that's also really difficult because again, everyone is being put in all these different directions. So getting that time with the CEO, getting the time with, you know, whether it's the CTO or the CFO, how do you really help them understand why you need to start to lay the investments the way you need to? Why do you have to increase that media spend? Really just always having to justify why and making sure that you protect things from when inevitably there needs to be cuts. Marketing is always the first thing to be cut. It's very frustrating. I think the further you get in leadership, the more you realize that, to your point about first team, you have to wear two hats and they're sometimes hard to juggle. You have your functional hat, leading a function, advocating for the function, because if you don't, who will? But you also have to have your enterprise hat to say, we're managing to a total P&L. We want to have a great bottom line. We want to, of course, have a great top line that drives to a great bottom line. So it's tough because if business is soft, if there are other overarching challenges, you're all trying to get to the same place. And I think that's one of the things that fellow C-suite executives all need to remind each other of is while you might be defending a certain perspective through the lens of your own expertise, it really is about all wanting the same thing. You, the board, your CEO, you all want to win together. You just may have different views about how to get there. And that's inevitable. I think when it comes to the budgeting piece, for me, after years of doing this, it's always this chicken and egg. It's never really a zero base because you're going to get handed targets. Mm-hmm. So the challenge is how do you find some harmony between building it the way you really believe is the right way, especially as a marketer, because you're thinking, about growth with the realities of what the budget and the PL might be able to contain. And I think the answer is it kind of winds up being this mashup of the two. It often becomes the former as much as I always go in with big aspirations and ideals. Sometimes it just turns into, yeah, yeah, here's the budget. And then you have to make good with it. Well, just do more with less, right, Marissa? <laughs> just you know, work your magic. No, well, exactly. Exactly. It's funny because everything that we've just been talking about is really an internal stakeholder group. Mm -hmm. I feel like the 
other side are external stakeholders. Mm. I mean, if you're at a large brand, you most likely have agency partners. Maybe they're your creative agency partners. Maybe it's your media agency. Then you have all the media companies and they all want time with you as well. So you also need to make time for your partners, folks that can really help you think strategically about the business. And I feel like, again, everyone wants time with you. And ultimately, you are the voice of the customer. I love all of my friends in engineering, you know, on the tech side, the product side, they think they have an idea of the customer. I'm sorry, the reality is it's usually someone who is leading marketing, leading customer, leading growth that truly understands who the customer is. And you need to also spend time with the audience, with the consumer. That's a great point. It's so difficult to spend across all these different stakeholders. Great point. And it reminds me of something I did in my two previous companies that I haven't yet done in my new one. We'll see if if the size is right to do it. But we would hold a media day where we invited all the partners and I as a CMO presented to them and presented what in the past we might have thought of as somewhat proprietary. But it was really about sharing, hey, if you're going to be our partners, you have to understand what are we trying to do? And the feedback I and the team got over that was so positive. It just makes sense when people feel brought along. And when they really understand what you're trying to do, they feel not just a vendor. They feel like a true business partner and are motivated to help you solve problems. So for me, that's always been a principle of how I try to talk to agencies. And I think that's when the best work happens is when they really do feel like they're part of your extended team because they are. That's right. You just have to treat them that way. So what advice would you give to folks that are listening to this in either you're kind of in a marketing org today, or you're an external partner that wants to help out. How do you give some perspective and some advice during this very critical summer planning season? Well, I said before when we were riffing about threads that I felt somewhat of an optimist and somewhat of a skeptic. And I think that there is a slightly different version of that in my approach to these times, which is you have to find your optimism and you have to combine it with your pragmatism. If you're too pragmatic, then you're never going to push for what's right through your particular lens of expertise. But if you're purely an optimist and you don't address the pragmatic nature of the business and the conditions are in, then you're not going to seem like you're really checked in. So for me, it's trying to find that line and how to balance the two as a leader to your own team and just for yourself in terms of how you engage with your peers and what you fight for and where you compromise because it's just the reality. I feel that this is a topic that's going to keep on coming up. So let us continue this dialogue around summer planning. Mm -hmm. But next up, we're going to be talking about not what's on our mind. Let's talk about what's on your <laughs> mind. We'll take our listener question next. All right, and we are back for What's On Your Mind. Now, we always want to end up with What's On Your Mind, our listener question, and we really want to hear from you. So let us know what you're wondering about, the questions that you have, things that are top of mind, and please send us your questions to ideas at brand-new.com. And so this week, our question was actually the very first question to hit our inbox after episode one. So of course, we had to make it our question for this episode. And here it is. What is the best advice you can give a marketer when a company says that they'd like to modernize the brand, but their actions and reactions to new ideas say otherwise? What's the best approach to convince leadership that we don't have to always do what's been done in the past? Hmm, Marissa, this is, uh, I think, a very timely question maybe for you uh, to take a first stab at. 
Wow, that is a poignant question for me because it defines a lot of what I've had to do. And change is not for the faint of heart. Change is scary because you're effectively trading the known for the unknown. And we tend to feel maybe it's that the devil I know versus the devil I don't. Mm -hmm. But it's also illogical to think that by continuing to do things the way we've always done them, we're going to get a different, if not better, result. Isn't that the definition of insanity? Well, I was going to go there, (laughs) but you went there. I mean, it is, right? So you kind of take these tropes. On the one hand, we fear change. On the other hand, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and getting a different result. So there is a certain aspect of reminding your colleagues why and using information, insights, and dare I say instinct about what needs to change and why and how you're going to methodically roll something out in a way that demonstrates it was the right decision. So what does modernizing mean? I mean, that can mean so many different things. Sometimes not wholesale, aka expensive changes. It might be taking a different approach in how you show up in social media, for example, and you can experiment. Mm-hmm. It might be all the way to changing a logo that's been in place for 25 years and calculating what the expense of that is. So I think the higher the risk goes with the higher the expense and size of the change. So what I would say, and I love this question, is think about really what needs to change and why. How can you stair-step your way versus when is a complete and utter transformation necessary versus an evolution? And just be prepared to rationalize why doing this is going to put you and the brand in a better position than it is today. And if things aren't perfect, which inevitably they aren't, that should be part of the impetus for making change because you don't want to do it ever just for a vanity reason. Like I'm new and I want to just make it different. It always has to be grounded in a business rationale and that's where it has to start and that's where it has to be based. I love that. What do you think? I wish I could take as optimistic (laughs) a perspective. (laughs) Maybe I've just been uh, burned a few too many times. I feel like this is actually one of the most tender issues, most sensitive issues for anyone that has been responsible for a brand or marketing or growth, because usually the person that's in this type of role really is an innovator. They become the entrepreneur if they're trying to change a company internally. You have to wear so many hats. I truly believe that the CMO is the hardest job in the C-suite, bar none, because you have to truly take all these different stakeholders and everyone thinks they could do your job. And when people say they want change, if we're really being honest, most people don't. That's right. They say they do, but they really don't. And it also depends on who is asking for the change. If it's a CEO, they say they want it, but it's almost like taking a page out of politics. You almost need to count the votes. Mm -hmm. I always think about the Hamilton song, you know, you don't got the votes. (laughs) I feel like you have to go around the C-suite and get the votes or, you know, you got to go in your team and then other teams laterally. Like, do you really have buy-in to do change? Because I think when people hear change, it means different things for different departments or different leaders. You know, the CFO hears cost and expense, period, full stop right? Like that just means, oh, you're going to go spend money doing something. And it's going to be something that is going to have a fuzzy ROI. Like, am I really going to see a return on that investment for whatever change you guys are about to do? If it's technology, 
usually the CTO, the tech team, they like to embrace change, but sometimes it's not made here mentality. Maybe they they want to go build it themselves, right? Or that software doesn't really work. You know, we could get something different. So I always feel that when you talk about change from a technical or a product perspective, that's really difficult. You really need to get buy-in for that. And then think about how closely sales and marketing work together. Sales usually thinks that they know it best and they obviously have a lot of the P&L responsibilities. So I think how you change go-to-market is also going to be different. And then ultimately, a lot of times the idea needs to be the CEO's idea, if we're being honest. Well, what you're saying, which is so true, is we're talking about change like it's all rational Mm -hmm. decision making, just like sometimes we try to make marketing feel rational. And of course, at the heart, what we're talking about are deeply emotional, unconscious behaviors. And our relationship with change is emotional. Yes. And my favorite, this is hard to do on a podcast, but I'll try to visualize my favorite cartoon, which I've opened keynotes with. It's two panels, okay? And it's a speaker talking to an audience and saying, who wants change? And everyone raises their hand. And the next panel is, who wants to change? And all the hands come down. And that right there is our complicated relationship with the idea of change. We say we want it, but then when it actually evokes a behavior change from us, we're very ambivalent about it. And so then if you're a change agent in the company, it's really, really hard to reconcile what people say they want versus what they're willing to do. And so I think it starts with having empathy that that's what you're fighting against. You're fighting against, I had a stakeholder a while ago say something to me, I don't like what we have, but I don't like change. There's the rub. So then what? (laughs) So, (laughs) Well, as one of my favorite quotes, change is inevitable, but growth is optional. Mm. So you get to choose. There you go. Well, hey, on that note, that's it for episode two. And we're out of time. Time was something we talked about quite a lot. Change is something we're definitely going to be talking about quite a lot. If you like this content, I hope you won't forget to follow us at the brand new podcast wherever you listen to your podcast so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and (laughs) threads. We want to hear from you. So let us know what you're wondering about or want to have a question answered. Just email us at ideas at brand-new.com. Love it. Definitely uh, threads is already blowing up, right? So please follow us there. (laughs) Um, But do us a favor, leave a rating, comment on Apple Podcasts. Tell us how much you like the content that helps spread the word, feed the algorithm. And please join us next time for What's Brand New. See you next time.